0: Trigger Warning. This podcast contains discussions about self-harm and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting, so please listen with caution. Hi Venters and welcome to another episode of Real Stories, a theatre and art series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. I really hope you've enjoyed this series as well as hearing something a bit different, thanks to our friends at Eka for the theme tune. In each episode of this series, we discuss my special guests' theatrical careers, we discuss the pieces of work that have meant the most to them, what the stage gives them, any issues within the industry they might want to talk about, and their own mental health journeys. This is Real Stories I am delighted to be checking in with the first female guest on the Real Stories series on today's episode. That wonderful woman is Emily Jane Kerr. Emily is an actor who trained at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama and is currently part of Notflix, which is the UK's original all-female long-form musical improvisation team. In this episode we discuss work-life balance in the industry, female body image and the pressure female actors are put under for roles and and the negative side of theatre reviews on actors' mental health. We also discuss Emily's lived experience of imposter syndrome, self-harm, which comes in the form of skin-picking, suicide and suicidality, and the importance of stopping caring what other people think about you. This is Emily Jane Kerr's Real Story. (laughs) Emily, welcome to Real Stories. Thank you so much for being the first female guest on the series. We are recording this pod when the first few restrictions are just about to start to ease in the UK. So how are you coping with everything going on and how how are you basically?
1: Thanks for having me, Freddie. Yeah, not too bad. It's been an interesting year with <laughs> ups and downs as I'm sure it has been for Everyone, but i will get onto that later i'm sure but my top highlight for this week i cut my own hair yesterday so (laughs) yeah big it up whoop
0: whoop there's quite a few topics we're going to discuss on this episode um which hasn't been discussed before on the series or the pod so i'm really excited for this one so let's start the show Let's start the pod as we do on every Real Stories episode um, by checking in about your journey into theatre and the arts. So, firstly, what made you fall in love with theatre, acting, writing, drama and everything in between?
1: Well, I have been very lucky because my parents have kind of always been into music, Uh, not necessarily theatre, but definitely music and sort of the arts as a bigger, wider, general subject. And I remember very vividly being very young and my parents doing (laughs) doing this thing at the the church, our local church called Chanticleers, which was basically anybody and everybody could go and join in, do a show. It was like a kind of compilation show where they'd sing songs from different genres and there'd be like a a musical section, a 1940s section. And I remember watching it and thinking, God, this is terrible but I'd love to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And I started doing drama classes when I was seven or eight. I was being bullied quite badly at school. Very little, I was very uh, loud, bubbly child. I think there's video footage of me sort of trying to get my parents to take the video camera away from my brother, who's learning to walk and me going watch me mummy I'm singing a song watch me but, but when I was at primary school I got uh whether it was bullied I don't know or just kind of my self-confidence took a massive dive and my mum started going well where's my where's my little girl gone and, and loads of kids in my class went to this youth theatre called Blag in Ritmansworth and it was amazing and I kind of blame them and thank them for everything <laughs> I've become. I made some of my best friends from there. My, some of my bridesmaids when I got married were from that in my youth theatre. And Ricky and Lynn Beaumont, who are the people that run the youth theatre, are still two very, very good friends of mine and they helped me with my prep for drama school, given me teaching jobs when I was out of work. I think that's where it started.
0: You were told in secondary school not to pursue theatre and the arts as a career. I mean, obviously it didn't have a lot of impact on you because you didn't listen. But what impact did that have initially on your mental health when you heard that advice?
1: So it's interesting because I was, I was thinking about this after we spoke the other week. And when I was actually, sidebar, I went for a walk with my mum and she said, I found a copy of the school magazine from X Year and I found an article from Emily Parks which is my actual name, Emily Parks, age, or was it year nine? So so what, you're 14, something like that. And I said, was it about the Macbeth workshop that we had? And we had this guy who came from, I think it was the RSC version of Macbeth. It was Sean Bean and Samantha, mm, I can't remember her surname, but it was a big, big deal. And this guy was the assistant or associate director and he came in and did a workshop with us because he knew our English teacher, we couldn't believe it. And we did lots of demonstrating and doing stuff. And I remember this guy saying, you're really good. You should think about doing this. I was like, well, I'm I'm 14. Yeah, I love drama, but I didn't really think it was a thing. And then when I got to drama school, that guy was a teacher at my drama school. So that was a nice sort of full circle moment. So to have that encouragement on one side of it from a younger age, but as I started getting older and everybody was sort of prepping for university, there was a lot of careers talk a lot of chat about what we should shouldn't be doing and i remember going into my careers chat saying i'm either going to go to music college which they were sort of okay with because the thing is if if you do a music degree whether it's a performative music degree or a very intelligence based degree the idea is that you yeah you do that on the side but also you're a teacher first and foremost because that's where most of the money is whereas when you do drama it's like, well, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to be a teacher? Are you going to you know, be a lawyer? Are you going to, I don't know. I can't quite remember what this woman sort of said to me. And I'm like, well, you know, that's none of your business, is it? <laughs> and I went, well, I'm going to do it, whatever you say. And I remember when I got into Central and I went to my A-level drama teacher and I was absolutely... I was so excited. It was my first drama school audition. I couldn't quite believe that I got in. It was a conditional offer, so I still had to get grades. So that was probably good for me, because otherwise I would have phoned in the rest of my A-levels. And I said to Ms. Salmon, oh, I've got into Central. She went, oh, that's good, because it's quite an an academic course, isn't it? So, you know, you'll still be using your brain. I was like, I don't... Well... (laughs) A, I will be using my brain, <laughs> but B, that's not that's not the point. That's not the point of it. I don't, I'm not going to become an academic. I'm going because it's a, it's a practical course. If I was going to do an academic course, I would have gone to a university and done drama and theatre studies course, but I didn't choose to do that. So why would you say that to me? It was interesting having these two sides of people that are outside of secondary school with Ricky and Lynn, my Saturday drama club teachers, being so incredibly supportive and the teachers at school going, oh, well, you should really do music. I'm still not quite sure why they thought that music was more appropriate than doing acting, but I did decide to go to drama school and I was doing my A-level performance, music performance. And afterwards, I remember the music teacher saying to me, oh, well, when you finish your degree, you're going to go and do a a classical singing post-grad, right? It's like, why do I have to keep coming back to this? Why can't I just do what I want to do? And I did it anyway.
0: You mentioned there going to the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. You started initially at the National Youth Theatre before you moved there. Can you just tell me about this part of your journey and what you learned during that period?
1: Yes, of course. Again, it goes back to this decision, kind of this spinning coin between music and and drama, which were both massive parts of my childhood and teenage years. I was always doing some sort of club, whether it was orchestra or choir, or I used to sing in the church choir. And I went for an open day. And I'd applied for National Youth Theatre thinking, there's no way I'm going to get in. I think I was 16. And there's no way, it's too much money. The audition went terribly. I embarrassed myself so badly. Everybody laughed. Oh, goodness me, it was awful, and sort of forgot about it. And then mum and I went to look at Trinity College in Greenwich to do music. And it was the year before you actually had to apply to stuff. And we went to look at Trinity. And I remember leaving that day going, That is a beautiful college. That's where I want to go. Got home, an acceptance letter from National Youth Theatre was on the doormat. And I immediately went oh, oh, well, I didn't realise I was good enough. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. And we managed to get people to donate some money as well. It was quite expensive. And I did the two weeks when I was 17 and it was absolutely magical. Staying in, I think we were in Greenwich and we did it at Larbonne, which was this beautiful thing. You know, you watch Fame or whatever, and this is exactly what Larbonne, was. Trinity Larbonne now, it's in Greenwich and it's absolutely gorgeous these big windows everywhere the bars across the wall and you know oh my goodness I'm in a musical in a movie I'm in fame this is so exciting and speaking to people who all had the same interests as you and actually wanted to do that kind of career because drama school on a Saturday was still very much a social thing as well as for people that wanted to do it and that's kind of I think where I went no this is what I want to do and I spoke to some of the people that the course assistants, the course leaders, and sort of said, where can I Where can I go? What can I do? And then went, oh, no, I'm going to try drama school, because that seemed to me at the time the only route, or rather the easiest route, because I didn't have anybody in my family that was in theatre or the industry. So I think National Youth Theatre, that's what made me decide that I was going to go to drama school.
0: Before we talk about the highlights from your acting journey. Can you just tell me and the listeners what the stage provides for you and your mental health? Is it escapism? Is it a place where you can truly be yourself or where you can be someone else? Or is it something even deeper than that?
1: Oh, I think it's a combination of all of those things. People talk about having a vote. Is it a vocation where it's it's almost like a calling? God, it sounds wanky. Can I do swears, by the way? Cool. Um, it, sound- <laughs> it sounds wanky, but I think that's what it is. Like... I could do other stuff, but I just, I just am not going to. I'm good at a lot of other stuff. And I think an acting background or the the kind of the background I've had where I've had to adapt myself to lots of different situations. It means I'm, to a certain extent, I'm very employable. Like I've done a marketing job, I've done sales jobs, I've worked in bars, I've done front of house, I've done teaching, all sorts of stuff. And you are able to adapt to those situations. So I probably could, like if I'd have stayed in that marketing job, I could have progressed and progressed and progressed and probably hated myself every single day. But I would have a very steady income. I'd have all of those things. But for me, it's never about that. Yes, it's important to be secure and to be safe and be healthy. But there's also so much to be said for the health of your brain and the health of your heart and nothing else fulfills that. And I think it's interesting you say about Being yourself or being somebody else. And it very much is a combination of that. And I think it's about the aliveness of it and in a very, oh God, egotistical, arrogant, horrible way, that validation and it kind of, you feed off the validation of other people to a certain extent. And with improv, it is a bit more about being yourself. And that's why I find improv really interesting is because you have to have, you have to be fully immersed in the scene and fully focused on the other person, but you also have to be aware of the journey of the show and aware as you, as Emily, I have to be aware of what the show needs to progress because it's a narrative show. And I think even when you are doing, I say a proper play in inverted commas, you can't still be fully immersed in a character. If you're playing Lady Macbeth and the theatre burns on fire and you're still going out damned spot, that's a very dangerous place to be in. So I think it's less about losing myself, more about that's where I find myself, that's where I feel most me, even though I'm not necessarily being me. That's such a long-winded answer to your question.
0: That's an absolutely fine answer to be honest and that's a really great answer you mentioned improv there and we're going to talk a bit later on the pod and how improv really changed your life from a mental health perspective M. but just quickly how did you get involved in notflix which i mentioned in the intro and what is your role within it as improv
1: so notflix the improvised musical is the uk's only all-female improvised musical we take a movie suggestion from the audience, and we turn it into the musical version of that, the musical show of your dreams based on the movie of your choice. I love it. It's so great. And I got involved with that in 2018, I want to say. Yes, 2018. And I was in a show in Edinburgh and the director, Sarah Spencer, and some of the girls came... And saw the show which was a musical about the edinburgh fringe it was a fantastic show called the ed fringe review loads of wonderful songs a song about climbing arthur's seats and about the fact that it always rains in edinburgh just all of those kind of little nods that if you're a massive fan of the fringe you'd get within 30 seconds but if you'd never seen or been to the fringe before it was kind of a how-to for the festival written by a wonderful composer and MD called Patrick Stockbridge. So Sarah saw me in that and said, we're looking for some people. Do you fancy coming along, trying it out? And I I went, that absolutely terrifies me. So that suggests that I probably should do it. And at that point I hadn't, had I? Yes, at that point I had done a little bit of improv. I'd started doing some weekly classes. I'd done a weekend workshop with Showstopper. And so I sort of, knew the world and, and I was interested in the world but the idea of doing it myself in an actual show scared the shit out of me but I just sort of went oh fuck it and did it anyway. Went along to these four weekly rehearsals which were wonderful to see the way that they worked and I'd seen Netflix as a show and I, I really had enjoyed the way that they took the get, the suggestion from the audience and then spun an hour's show on it. And that's the difference from Showstoppers is incredible. And I've learned so much under them, but they are constantly changing the show based on the audience, which is also is an amazing skill to, to kind of spin on an axis based on one single suggestion of a song type or what this particular character should do. But with Netflix, once the audience give you the thing, we then create the show for an hour. And I found that really interesting to, to how you can power through a narrative show. So I did four weeks of that, and then suddenly they needed somebody to do a show in Cambridge, and I went, alright then, and just did it, and it was absolutely terrifying, yeah, I, I don't think anything will ever <laughs> feel like that ever again, and... If I ever lose the small bit of that I have now before shows, then that's when, you know, it's time to stop, I think. If you don't have that adrenaline, that slight, like, seat-of-your-pants feeling before the show, then it's time to stop.
0: We always try and talk about one favourite role or production that has shaped your mental health in a positive way on Real Stories M. For you, it was a production company called West End Schools. I'm right in saying, which you called your Happy Place company off-air. Can you tell me more about them and... Why they've positively impacted your mental health in such a good way.
1: So, West End in Schools came along at, well, I would say quite a difficult time for me. I was doing a job that I really hated and I'd just kind of gone, oh, sod it, I'm just going to start applying for musicals again because I hadn't done any for a really long time. And I put a lot of weight on these auditions and on one particular audition, not for West End in Schools, it was for a week's workshop on a show. And I went, if I get that, then I'm leaving my job because that's a sign, and I did, and I left my job, and I'm so pleased that I did. But in this kind of string of bits of work that was essentially building up my confidence again, I think, West End in Schools were one of those companies where, to my mind, my CV wasn't strong enough to go and audition for them. I didn't have any real, I'd say in inverted commas again, real musicals on my CV, but I knew I was a really good singer. And I knew I'd done some kids theatre, some family theatre before. Went into this audition, had such a lovely time. And then with the show, that first show, again, it was absolutely... (laughs) The idea of having to learn a show in three days, it was three days rehearsal where you had one day doing the initial blocking, a day off to let it percolate, a day Two of rehearsals was about embedding that and doing character work. And then day three, you had to do a run for the producers to kind of show that you'd be able to go into a school or a venue and just do it. And that's because they have so many actors working for them. It's a really quick turnaround. You have to be able to work with lots of different people. And so they need to be sure that you can go out and do the job. And the director of that show, Abby, rossa williams is just amazing she used to be in cats she's this incredible performer incredible physical performer but she's also an amazing director and her and i just really 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 got on and she kept then asking me back to do lots of different stuff they're a company that have always been there when i needed work and every single person that works for them is an absolute gem and delight because it's only by recommendations that people are invited to audition and again yeah they're just they're just the most wonderful people every single person that works in the office is lovely nigel who owns the company is a joy and delight the shows are wonderful the music is beautiful they do these book week shows as well so i i I love reading and these book week shows are about encouraging kids to read more and doing those and being able to talk about the stuff that i love as well It's just great. And they challenged me as well. They forced me out of my comfort zone. We did a Around the World in 80 Days where rather than a man being Phileas Fogg, it was a woman being Philomena Fogg. And the other two people that they asked in, there was only three girls and three boys that they asked in to learn this show to then go out, you know, over a period of three weeks. And the other two girls I knew for a fact were really big sort of triple threat musical theatre girls. Really lovely, but very, could dance me, you know, into a tangle or... I know what their voices are like. And I was like, I can't believe, this is ridiculous. Why have I been asked to do this? This It's absolutely insane. And it was such a challenge, such a wonderful thing to be part of, learning and creating a new show. And they do that because, for, for want of a better phrase, they like me and they like people and they're incredibly supportive. I've even had instances of me taking the stuff back to their storage unit and them going, how are you? And I was like, to be honest, terrible. I've got nothing lined up after this. My other work won't give me any hours. I don't really know what I'm going to do. To then have a phone call 24 hours later going, hey, we've got some office work. Do you want to come in and do that for us? They're just really, really supportive.
0: I want to move on to something now which you were keen to speak about, Emily, which is female body image in the industry and how it affects female actors. When we spoke off air, you describe yourself as a normal-sized human being. But before that, you almost had to kind of check yourself. So you didn't call yourself a label that fell outside of that. Is that a battle you're fighting in your mind a lot? And why did you want to talk about this topic for the listeners?
1: It is absolutely a battle I have in my brain every single day. Do you know what? I was probably going to... I can't even remember what I was going to call myself. But I probably was going to say, I'm a fat human. That's probably what I was going to say. But, okay. Okay so it's part of my brain that is like you are not and i know i'm not but it doesn't stop you feeling that way and i have days often in succession where i can look in the mirror and go hey you know what em you look great today where equally even you know 12 hours later i can be throwing an absolute shit fit being like you are the ugliest person in the world you look so fat why do you eat so much How have you let yourself like almost that like you're out of control How have you let yourself get to this state?" And it's not a state, I'm pretty healthy, I eat well, I exercise a lot, I mean, more than I should do. And the problem is, is I'm just not working at the moment. This is, again, you can hear that I'm having this battle in my head trying to talk about it. I think it's a really, really important thing to talk about. And it's being talked about more, but especially with regards to the fact that there are not just two sizes of women and men as well. There is not just this young, thin, Kiran Knightley ugh, type human being or a Melissa McCarthy type human being. And not only that, but those two body types, as it were, should be allowed to play the other character types, which is something I faced a lot when I first left drama school because I am not a young Juliet. I never was. Even at the age of 14, I never never would have been cast as Juliet because people don't want to see somebody that's got personality, that's got a little bit of fight playing a character like that. They want a typical Shakespearean, wet weekend Juliet but actually, I'd much rather go and see a Juliet that, she disobeys her parents. She's 13. She marries a boy when she's 13. She disobeys her parents completely. She's got to have some sort of fire and some sort of impetus, but people don't want to see that because it's not tradition. And equally with those kind of two extremes and the swapping of those, there's so many different body shapes in between. Not just, you know, I say normal size people, but there's equally like muscular girls and apple-shaped girls, a pair, like whatever. There's so many different body types and human beings are so fascinating for exactly that reason that, yeah, we all, to all intents and purposes, have two eyes, a nose, two ears, a mouth. Most of us have all of our limbs still intact, but we look completely different and that is what is so fascinating about humans. So why not show that on a stage? And the same goes for not just body shape, but also colour and... All of that, like, different, different, you know, religions, races, that should all also be shown on a stage. And it's still, even now, it's still not. And I just think it's really, really important to tack into that. Like, I know for a fact I'm not the only person that has been told either to lose weight or put on weight because of where I sit in the scale of human being size. Like, I'm a size 14. That's below technically below the national average so why should that not be shown on a screen and i think on screen it's even more it needs even more work there was a tv show called pure last year year before it was on channel four it was amazing it was really really good and they are so good at making sure everybody on screen looks like a real person rather than just a photo fit idealised version of a human.
0: Would you go as far to say that what you have is perhaps undiagnosed body dysmorphia? And if you could say that, how have you seen that issue affect other women or your peers in the industry? How big a problem is it, do you think?
1: I think it's a massive problem. And not just with women, with men as well. I've worked with a couple of guys that have spoken to me about it. They are I mean, they're huge like big guys, but they're not bulked up. They're not, what's the term? Ripped? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're nodding, good. (laughs) They, again, human beings look like that. So why shouldn't they look like that and be on a stage rather than either really bulk up and make that mass muscle? Why do they have to do that? Or why do they have to lose weight in order to be this the untangible thing that they are not yes to answer your question i do really think it is undiagnosed body dysmorphia and i think i've had it for a very very long time but that's again that's something (laughs) i don't ever do anything about my problems because um, i help people with their problems that's the way i deal with my (laughs) my issues um and i think it's something that a lot of people especially in the acting industry where a lot of what happens to you career-wise is because of what you look like to a certain extent it's one of the only industries where that matters like i wouldn't go to a an interview for a plumbing job i don't know diploma's interview for work i don't know i wouldn't go to an interview for a plumbing job and they wouldn't say sorry you're too short just doesn't happen
0: what do you think the source of it is so for example is it misogyny within the industry from directors who want or casting crews who want a specific type of body for female actors in their roles is it then transferred into unrealistic beauty standards women in society do women internalize it themselves what can you tell me here and how do you think we tackle it because it's obviously quite a tough thing to tackle straight there's no not there's no like one size fits all you know bullet to cure it basically
1: i think it comes from history right It comes from the patriarchy, for want of a better word. Obviously, that's not necessarily as much of a case now. I think women still, especially sometimes women in power, can also be just as damaging. But it definitely comes from that sort of long, established, patriarchal, putting women on a pedestal. Women are things of beauty. They should be things to look at rather than do things and then equally that then works its way down to that the men go out to work the women stay at home sort of mentality that you can see the way that it has fed through but equally like I said before I think women can be just as damaging as as men with god some casting directors as well like they definitely are very bitchy for want of a a better word it's not the word I, I want to use but it'll have to do And how do we solve it? I think the way that you begin to solve it is being somebody like Emma Rice, who is magnificent. And everything she does, whether it's with wise children, whether it's with knee high, whether it's the stuff that she did at the Globe, everybody looks like a human being. First off, second off, <laughs> first off, second of all, the actors that play these characters are not always the actors you would expect to play the characters, and it's so exciting to watch that. I saw a performance of Twelfth Night at the Globe, directed by Emma Rice. There's this wonderful actress; I can't remember the name of her off the top of my head, but she's worked for Emma for a number of years. She played Malvolio. She is five foot. <laughs> she played Malvolio. She was amazing. Legato Chocolat played Feste. They were incredible. Legato is a, is a drag queen and they are absolutely amazing. And then lots of the roles were gender swapped, and they were people of so many different races and shapes and sizes. And it was just joyous for exactly that reason. It was one of the most magical experiences I've had at the globe and Emma does that so beautifully with the making sure that society is represented on stage and another another show that definitely did that was Amelia and that also goes for there were there were people with physical disabilities there was also a deaf lady playing one of the characters but it wasn't oh she's playing a deaf character she just was the character and the same goes for yeah the fact that it was an all-female production as well, as, which for me made it really, really exciting. But because of that, it meant everybody can play everything. It's similar to Netflix, like I was, I've, I've said to you, I think, before. The beauty of us being an all-female group is the fact that we can play anything and we can do anything. Whether it's internalised or externalised force telling us we can't because it's just us in this world. And if I want to play a 50-year-old American cop, male cop, I can or if I want to play Gwen Stacy from Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, I can. Or if I want to play Spider-Pig, I can. Um, there's nothing to, to stop me doing that. And I think that's the way to, to start to make it better, is to make sure that society is reflected.
0: We talked a lot about in the industry. I want to move on to something which is external to the industry, but still criticises a lot, which is theatre reviews. Now, when we spoke off air, you said an actor called Jenna Russell experienced this dark side when a theatre reviewer said she had, quote, piled on the pounds when little did they know she was actually quite a few months pregnant. How did you feel reading that review as a woman? And then can you tell me a bit more about how this affects the industry and your mental health, maybe other actors' mental health too?
1: Well, I think (laughs) I remember seeing it on Twitter and A, thinking, she's size twelve. Like, that's not big. But equally, how dare you? How dare you mention that? Again, it goes to the same thing. I wouldn't go to a, a plumbing job and then somebody give me a Yelp review saying, yeah, yeah, she was quite good at fixing my U, Ben, but, I mean, she had, a, she had put on a lot of weight since she came come last time. That's not a thing in any other industry. It's just not. I think so much needs to be done about the way that actors are spoken about in reviews because it should not be a reflection on the way that you look again it should be a reflection on your talent and your ability your believability is that part and I had had prior to reading that I'd done a uh, Midsummer night Dream I played Puck and somebody in the review had called me a plump puppy which was not It was apropos to nothing and I think it was then, open brackets, probably because she keeps eating the sweets that Oberon leaves out for her, close brackets, which was something that we devised, which was I was this kind of, almost like a pet to Oberon and he would leave me a trail of things for me to get to him. Now, the problem is, is I can't eat a lot of stuff so the sweets were a a middle ground where i could actually physically eat them which was something that we wanted to happen it also meant i could give them to people i had a little bag and i put them in my bag rather than necessarily stuffing my face with them every single time but equally even if i had been doing that you just need to say he left her a trail of sweets you don't need to go oh she's fat probably because she's eating the props like that's (laughs) that's not necessary and I remember telling my agent at the time i just signed with him and he was absolutely furious. <laughs> and I thought, oh good, that means that he's, you know, he's got my back and he has done throughout all of these years. The varying sizes that I have been, he has had my back. And there have been so many interesting reviews and I think the problem is is if you believe the good ones, then you have to believe the bad ones. I read that in a book the other day. I think it's called Understudying McKellen. It's about an actor who understudied Ian McKellen playing King Lear, and it's absolutely fascinating. It was his diaries from the time of him doing it. And I don't know if it was him that said it or somebody else, but I think that's very true. And I tend to read them with a, a wry smile and take them with a pinch of salt because I always know whether what I'm doing is good and whether the show that I'm doing is good as well. I think I have a very strong radar for that kind of stuff. So I... (laughs) and also you have to you have to have a thick skin it's so interesting talking about body image stuff and how how I beat myself up about that but with with acting I've got such a thick skin now because I trust my instincts and I know whether what I'm doing is good or not I did a musical a couple of years ago and somebody said I was chewing the scenery which is not the biggest compliment in the world and I just kind of went oh fuck it so I took a picture of me you know like making like a growling face was like off to work to chew the scenery and like tagged the review in there and everyone was like yes take it own it and that show was so interesting because it had it was such a marmite show it had five stars or one stars there was nothing in the middle and I loved what I was doing in the show and I loved the show itself I just don't think it was necessarily ready for that big an audience but Yeah, you just have to know yourself before you can allow yourself to be influenced by the reviews, I think.
0: You told me off air that you've been in certain dressing rooms where reviews are almost taboo because there's this desire not to create a bad atmosphere. And acting as an art, as much as people might want to deny it, in many ways is about adulation, appreciation and being adored by your audience. Going deeper here, do you think that plays into why some actors care so much about theatre reviews?
1: Yeah, because it's extra validation. <laughs> it is. It's that um, you have that immediate validation from an audience or from a cast member backstage. Where they're like, oh, the way you picked up that handkerchief today, that was amazing. That kind of thing. But equally, you have the people after the show, you have your friends, you have your family, but there's a certain, you know, people hold, sometimes hold critics in quite, you know, high esteem and they need to know that what they're doing is worthy. But I'd rather do something that I know is good. In fact, do you know what? I'd... I'm going to regret saying this. I would rather be in that Marmite show. I'd rather have five or one. I don't want to be muddy dishwater in the middle. I don't want that.
0: I want to move on to the elephant in the room when it comes to this pod, which is COVID and work-life balance around it. Um, It's affected the theatre industry massively. And this has been the longest period of time of recording you've had without work as an actor. How has COVID impacted your mental health and your fellow thespians? (laughs)
1: um mine it has been very up and down I've had periods where I have been very grateful to have the time to I guess reconnect with my husband and spend loads of time together it's probably the longest period that we've had together as it were and we've been able to buy a house we've been able to move and enjoy each other's company go away for a couple of weekends last year like when I was in Brighton doing Netflix gigs he came with me and that was really nice Because again, COVID has affected his line of work where he has had to have, in order to split the team up so that there's less of a chance of the spread, a week on and a week off. So those weeks off that we had together were really, really lovely. And we were able to do things. So that part of it has been really nice and really joyful. But then equally, there's been a sense of everything being taken away from me where, yes, it's my work, but also work is very social. And my social has been taken away from me too. And yeah, just that ability to like go for meetings in person with people to even, you know, oh, hey, I'm in central London at the moment. Can you come and have a chat with me at the national theater to sit and have a coffee and talk about this idea that I've got? Or, hey, I've written this song. Do you wanna come over and sing it? Like even those little pockets of it, it's just not the same. You can't do that on Zoom. And that's been very bad to realize that, oh, it's not just my work that's been taken away. It's kind of my social sort of stuff too. And I think it's the same for most actors or or people within the creative industry. I've been quite lucky that I picked up a bar job in a really lovely little local taproom, not too far from me. And they're amazing. They're also really interested in, in creative. The company's called Creative Juices Brewery Company and their whole point is that they support local arts things they get local artists to do the designs for their beers and did the logo and all that kind of stuff like amazing amazing people but that took me five months to get a job i got rejected from morrison's like i was applying to everything anything and everything because although i did get some self-employed grant from the government it's it was pittance because i had one really bad year out of those three years and there i know i'm lucky that i got something but there were an awful lot of people who got absolutely nothing so i can't imagine how they must be feeling and because i know how i was feeling so i desperately wanted to get a job because a i couldn't deal with sitting at home anymore i need structure that's also something i've realized this last year is i need a schedule And around the schedule, I can be as flexible as you like, but I need to have that core part of my week where I'm like, on Mondays, I do this on Tuesdays, I do this, or even just to know three weeks in advance that the next three weeks, I've got some little bits, otherwise, I'm just sat at home all the time. And I think that must have been really tough for people to go from doing something or even you know when they stop the bars closed because most actors work in bars or work in theatres and that all closed as well so then you have nothing as well.
0: Productivity is a key discussion point here Emma as you said because you want that schedule you need that routine and like me for a lot of people it's a positive tool for their mental health however it's not purely the cure and one thing you were told when you were out of work and struggling with your mental health was that do you think it's because you're not working? Do you think there is an assumption inside and maybe outside the industry that work is that cure? And why is that maybe misguided from your perspective?
1: I think it can be the same for any job. Because you can look at anyone and go, oh, well, they've got their life together. They own their flat. They're married. They have a stable job. But you don't know what's going on in their head. And you don't know what other things are going on. And I think that's where it is you can make an assumption based on what people's circumstances are like and not actually know what is going on beneath the surface, especially because most people that are struggling say that they're fine.
0: And as a final question, um, before we move on, what has this theatrical journey taught you about yourself, do you think?
1: That I am a sucker for laughter, that I need other people Yeah, essentially, I'm just, I'm just a very lonely person that needs other people's validation and appreciation, which is, that's not all. (laughs) I think that it is more that even if you're working, you're not always fine, you're not always happy, but equally working too much can have that effect as well. And if anything rather than my life teaching me that this last year has taught me that that there's definitely a balance to be had where you are not working so hard that you think you're fine because you can't think about your problems but equally delving into them and swimming in them because there's nothing else going on is also bad and that there's kind of a a middle ground to be had with that
0: We've gone in depth with Emily, the actor. I want to dive into your real story now, Emily, and talk about your own journey. So I ask all my special guests this question to start with. Walk me through your early life, teenage years, family, upbringing, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Emily we meet here? I understand you were quite busy as a child.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's definitely something I think I've only realised again this last year is that like, I was kept so busy as a child and I cared about everything far too much. That's wrong, I, I wouldn't say that. I think one of my best qualities is the fact that I care about stuff and I just need to, or I'm starting to learn the tools in order to protect myself, to not let that harm me. But I don't think... There was anything massively as you know there was no big great trauma when i was a child there was nothing massively like my parents were both very busy me and my brother were always very busy we were always doing stuff and i think again like i've i've said i i don't think it's down to upbringing it's that nature versus nurture thing where i think it's six of one and half a dozen of the other and i don't think you can look at somebody's life and go oh that's the moment Well, you might be able to with some people, maybe not with me.
0: Imposter syndrome is something that's affected you throughout your life. It has a few variations of its definition depending on the individual you speak to. Tell the listeners about it that don't know what it is, and then when you first started to be affected by it and how.
1: Well, I think for me it manifests itself in that feeling that nobody likes you. Why am I here do I deserve this? How have I achieved this? Is Did somebody you know take pity on me? And also for me, it's a lot of that paranoia of, oh God, have I done something wrong? Have I upset you? And the constant apologising, which has got worse this last year. And I definitely think that started happening when I was at a secondary school. I went to an all-girls school and I never really had one specific group of friends i was a bit of a, a social is too positive a word i think a bit of a social floater that's an awful word um <laughs> uh where i had different groups of friends for different things and i never really managed to fit necessarily with one particular group and you then start going oh well why are they friends with me do they like me Are they friends with me just because I do this specific thing? Are they friends with me just because I do this? Or, yeah, it's very much the, oh, God, nobody likes me. That's mostly where mine comes from. And that has then since escalated into, oh, well, if nobody likes me, I don't have a purpose, especially this last year without a job. You go, well, there's no point in me being here. So why do I exist?
0: That imposter syndrome and trail of thought you just mentioned unfortunately turned into suicidal tendencies for you and suicidality your mind would tell you there's no point me being here because nobody needs me nobody wants me what period of your life did that occur and if you could say how did you feel in that moment
1: um it kind of pokes its head up at all sorts of times and often the most inconvenient times and Honestly, off the top of my head, I don't think I could tell you a specific period where it first started. I can just always, like, even as a teenager, occasionally remember thinking, oh, well, there's no, there's no point, is there? And it was never massive when I was a teenager. I was, to all intents and purposes, to the outside view, I was quite a happy teenager and I still am quite a happy human being. Whether that is genuine or whether that is hiding, I think there's two sides of that where I am a very enthusiastic person and very loving and very caring and just love stuff and love doing things. And often that is delved into more to hide the other stuff. So now I don't think that there was a particular moment where that started, but it's definitely got worse as I've got older and... And there are certain places and certain people that trigger it more where there was a job that I left because I kept feeling like that a lot. And not having those things to distract yourself this past year has made that exponentially worse. But I think it's an interesting <laughs> thing that I I will start to unpick at some point where you go, oh, that's why I do all of The things that I do and why I keep myself so busy is so I don't have that and I never really realised that until you know the last year or so.
0: You've just spoken there about becoming more self-aware of these thoughts but despite that have you been able to stop them at all or find tools to help them stop entering your mind or maybe when they do manage them a bit better?
1: Yes and no. I think a couple of years ago I realised that exercising helps which is really annoying because you know it's good for you both physically and mentally it makes me want to do it even less <laughs> but so i i was i was going to the gym before the world closed world closed before the world imploded i was going to the gym every day apart from the weekends and then i was running and then I got told I couldn't run anymore. And I was doing online dance classes. I got told I couldn't do that anymore because it was affecting my my joints. So now I force myself to go out every single day to go for a walk, even if it's just half an hour, because I find that both the physical exercise and the, the fresh air in the space, that really helps. So that's something I try and do as a preventative and also as a, a restorative thing. I have to make sure that I eat. I find if I don't eat, that's when I know that I'm in a really bad way. I've had my husband have to come and scoop me out of bed and force me to eat because I haven't eaten for, you know, 48 hours. Just finding me sort of sitting on the floor of the bedroom crying and not knowing why, not being able to stop crying and him sort of going, well, okay, well, then you need to... We need to get you some food because I think that will make you to start see things clearer drinking water so much water it's very important <laughs> and I have a notebook that I keep by my bed that if I am not feeling okay I will try and write down the feelings not for any judgment but so that they are out of my head and it means in a couple of days' time I can go back and look at it and either say, oh, those thoughts were founded or they were unfounded. I have also started playing a lot of video games and I feel like that has helped me quite a lot. And I think people would say that that's maybe not, it's not the most, you know, clever use of time, but I don't sit there playing shoot 'em ups I pick games where they are problem-solving and I'm immersing myself in them and I'm using my brain and I'm engaging actively engaging rather than sitting and watching tv which is something i used to do a lot of where i'd put on a series and then just you know 12 hours later the american office is finished and (laughs) and you haven't done anything you've just it's passively happened and i think that's very bad because then you start to sink again into a hole so i think video games have really helped with that with having so much spare time i also cross stitch again that's something i tend to pick up when i'm feeling particularly anxious because it stops my hands doing stuff and I always try and make them for somebody else so that the focus is on another person. So I think in a kind of like a nutshell, what I realise is that one needs to treat oneself like a pet or a dog where you need exercise, you need fresh air, you need food, you need water, you need fun and you need attention. Uh, and love so with that last one I, i try and speak to somebody that i care about every single day that's what i started doing this year and you wouldn't begrudge your pet for wanting those things so why should i stop myself from needing those things
0: from your perspective what do you think people don't understand about imposter syndrome
1: well i think a lot of people probably have it to some extent but it doesn't always manifest itself quite so forcefully i mean and if you if you don't if you don't have that then are you a normal person I think because if you don't have a little bit of self-doubt then perhaps are you a sociopath i think everybody should have self-awareness not necessarily self-doubt but self-awareness because if you don't have that then i think there's probably something else going on but i don't know if people would necessarily know that that's what it's called or that some people experience it even more like everybody gets that worry when they go into a job interview where they're like am I good enough for this job? Um, And I think that's totally natural. It's just the ability to counteract it, I think is probably stronger in some people than others.
0: I want to move on now to something quite sensitive. And it's something that I've talked about a little bit on the pod, but not on real stories yet, um, which is self-harm. So in your experience, you've self-harmed using quite stereotypical methods, but also ones people might not think immediately is self-harm like excessive drinking or skin picking and hair pulling. And it's something I'm a big advocate for because I used to bite my nails horrifically and I didn't realise until therapy that it was self-harm. So let's go back a little bit if we can. Can you tell the listeners about your mental health state a few years ago that led you to start self-harming in this way? And when did you realise that what you were doing was self-harm basically?
1: I used to bite my nails as a child, definitely. And I think that was a, a very anxious thing that has now I know... I notice it when I'm really worried about stuff, like biting the skin around my fingers and that kind of stuff. But equally, I used to have these sort of fits of rage where I'd scream at myself and self-flagellate, both physically and mentally, at the smallest things, like not being able to decide what to wear because you're a fat bitch and you don't fit into anything. Like, I think even then, even as a teenager, that happened. And at the time, I used to just think I was just, you know, just cross. And it's only... I think since meeting my husband, where he was kind of the one that sort of went, like, are you Are you okay? Like, that's not normal for one. You know, normal is not necessarily the right word, but are you feeling all right? And it started to get to the point where he would have to kind of leave me alone to get dressed or leave me alone when I was in this kind of rage. And then with the drinking, I think that also started happening probably when I was about, oh, I don't know, like twenty mid twenties, I sort of returned to this sort of 18 year old where I was like, thought I was absolutely invincible. And at the time I was like, I'm having the best time. I'm so skinny, look at me go. Um, And actually I was really not very happy. And I didn't realize that until a few years later that I had done that, you know, drinking to forget rather than drinking to have a good time. And I made a decision a few years ago that I would stop drinking if I clocked that especially you find as an actor you find yourself in social situations where you are not always necessarily the most comfortable be that a networking vomit a networking event or a social event where you have to go because you've got to go and support your friend and I decided a few years ago that if I clocked that I was drinking to deal with the situation then I would switch to soft drinks and if I still didn't feel comfortable then I would get myself out of that situation and that's something I, I decided a while ago but I think that the actual kind of the physical stuff, I didn't really clock until this year that it was to do with an actual, I would say probably an actual mental health problem where I was really laying into myself about stuff. Like really small things. like You can kind of understand somebody getting into a rage about not getting a job or, for example, driving a car into something like like a little knock on a car and right? I used to get like full-on fits of rage but I've I've had that this last year quite a lot about absolutely nothing like the smallest thing and it's taken that for me to go oh oh I should probably I should probably do something about that because also I think the most dangerous thing is that the rage is never directed at another person it's always directed at me so I think although I find it as, as an outlet, the fact that I am then damaging myself, whether that be with words to myself or me hurting myself physically. Either way, that's really dangerous and really detrimental to a person. So yeah, that's on my uh, to-do list to uh, deal with when I, <laughs> when I have some money to speak to someone.
0: There's a lot of stigma about self-harm and I think a lot of people who don't self-harm can't get their head around the fact that someone who is in pain would cause more pain to themselves. For you, what did the self-harm do for your mental health? Was it, for example, a way to let out emotions? Was it a comfort blanket? Was it a communication method that you couldn't do when you were a child or or something deeper or something else?
1: I think it's all of those things. I think it's it's a way of controlling a situation or controlling a thing you're controlling yourself because you can't control what's going on around you it is a sometimes it's a way to feel something when you don't feel anything it is equally a there's a particular thing I do sometimes when I'm trying to focus my breath and focus and by causing myself pain that's the way that I can focus my brain because the fog gets too much and it feels like you can't, um, it's almost like you're suffocating. Like if you're on on the verge of a panic attack or about to have a panic attack and I will pinch the inside of my arm and that's a way for me to focus in on something to distract myself from what's going on. So for me, it's not necessarily about causing myself more pain, It's a coping mechanism, definitely.
0: When you were self-harming, you said you had a tendency to say sorry too much. And it's something I used to do quite a lot. And to be honest, it's quite a British thing as well. I think I I once said sorry before I introduced my own name to someone. It's very weird. You called the voice in your head that does this, Steve. Can you tell me about how that voice affects your mental health? And why did you name it a banal male name like Steve?
1: Well, Steve is a middle-class white man name. And the man in my head, he's definitely a man, tells me I'm rubbish and I'm not very good. And that's why he's called Steve. It's because it's its almost like, it was either Gary or Steve and I went for Steve. It's a very like, a nothing name. So I gave it a name. So I'd be like, ugh, like, oh, you're such a prick. Like, why are you talking to me like that? Yeah, and those voices, I think they're kind of like that inner saboteur as it is very much feeds into that imposter syndrome feeling and the (laughs) have I managed to turn it down I did start getting very very good at turning him down when I started improv that was one of the reasons that I wanted to go because I was finding myself being so apologetic about everything not just vocally but also physically and you can't do that when you're doing improv and that's one of the best things about it you have to be present and you have to focus on the other person and there's no room for apology And I did get really, really good at it. But this last year, I got worse again because I don't have that constant outlet and that feeling like, oh, you shouldn't be here and you shouldn't be doing this thing. And, oh God, I have nowhere to be. And I'm sort of sorry for my existence, I think. So that has come back a a little bit.
0: When it comes to improv, would you say it's changed your life? Along with, obviously, RuPaul's Drag Race, which you love. (laughs)
1: Yes, RuPaul's Drag Race, because it teaches you that anybody deserves a place in this world, I think, and about loving yourself. And I know it's a cliche, that sort of stuff that he says at the end, like if you can't love yourself, then you can't love anybody else. And I think that's a good place to start as any. But with improv, it really, it really did change my life. It was in that period of terrible drinking and terrible not looking after myself nurse. and I was in Edinburgh and my friend said oh you should do improv I was like well I used to do it when I was a kid and then I did a show in Edinburgh and it kind of scarred me and I don't really want to go there again and my friend sort of went well, we're booking you a course. And I didn't remember this at the time. And the next morning I woke up and there was an Eventbrite ticket in my email inbox for a Showstoppers weekend course. And I was like, well, well, I've got to go now, haven't I? I've spent the money. (laughs) And sort of said to myself before the weekend, okay, it's a taster. This is the most scary thing I've ever done because it's not only is it improvisation, it's singing improvisation. And if I hate this, then I never have to do it again. But you have to do it. And if you don't like it, You never have to do it again. And I had the best time and also the worst time, but the best bits of it outweighed how much I beat myself up. When I say the worst time, I mean I was so overly critical of myself, which is something I'm still very, very likely to do. But the good sort of bit of it overweighed the bad bit of it. And so I went, right, okay, so I'm going to look into doing some weekly courses. And I did that. I did like a year of weekly courses which was absolutely amazing did some more showstopper workshops and i just felt myself becoming more like i was when i was younger that like playful give less of a fuck mentality and helped with auditions where i'd go into an audition and be present in that moment not worry about anything else and then leave the room and leave the audition behind, rather than spending the rest of the day thinking about, oh god, should I have said that word differently? Should I have said this word differently? Oh, did I say my name weird when I introduced myself? Oh, I wish I hadn't fallen up the stairs in the umbrella rooms into the top, <laughs> the top studio, which has actually happened to me. But I was able to just kind of drop it and walk away. It's an invaluable tool, I think I found as an actor and as a person to be able to live in the moment and then not let those moments eat you up hours later, which they do at the moment. But that's because because life isn't normal. I think lots of people are experiencing the four o'clock in the morning. Oh, why did I say X, Y, Z to this person when I was 21? What a terrible idea. Why did I do that? Why am I thinking about that now, 12 years later?
0: You've just described a lot of my life there, so that's probably why I was laughing so much on mute. As a final point in this topic, um, it's really important for our mental health to have a strong support network. And I think you don't build resilience unless you have a support network to go through the hard times and then you build resilience after that, essentially. For you, your husband has been a big factor in that. How does he support your mental health in a way that perhaps your actor friends can't do? given he works outside the industry.
1: He is so supportive in every sense of the word, where if I take a job, he will just let me go do that and come and watch me and enjoy it. And even more so now that he's used to it, he'll socialise with people as well because he knows that that's important to me. Equally, he will call me on my bullshit. And I think that's the most important thing is he... Indulges me when I need it, but then will tell me when I'm being a prick. Obviously, he doesn't use those words, but um, that I kind of that the two sides of what I need are the being wrapped in a blanket and allowed to stay in bed all day, but then sometimes I need to be dragged out and I need to be dragged out the front door. And he is very good about judging both of those. And me, for example, a couple of days ago, I went oh shit, I didn't go for a walk today. Oh God, I should go for a walk. And I started to beat myself up about it. And he said, you've cleaned the whole house. You've done so much housework. You've done so much today. Give yourself a break. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. (laughs) Sometimes you need somebody else to be honest with you about those things, especially when you're prone to berating yourself as I am.
0: And as a final question, if you could go back and talk to the Emily who was struggling with their mental health, couldn't silence the noisy Steve in her head and was self-harming, what would you say to her, knowing what you do now?
1: So here is probably where I am saying stuff that I need to hear <laughs> myself right now, is that it doesn't matter if not everybody likes you, as long as you are kind to people and that you are doing what you believe to be right and I think that's very important and also it doesn't matter what size you are you are still the same person on the inside lay off the booze a little bit (laughs) and just be kind to yourself I think that's the most important thing is is to be kind to other people and to yourself
0: Our final topic of conversation, Emily, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests if they have time, is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment?
1: It's been up and down over the last week or so. Today I'm feeling pretty good. Did not want to get out of bed and that's normally a bad sign, but I forced myself out and got dressed straight away. And that also, that normally helps too, is that like, rather than sitting in your pyjamas for what sometimes turns into six hours. This week, yeah, it's been a bit bit up and down, but today I'm feeling pretty good.
0: What age do you think you were when you first realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? When did you become self-aware, do you think?
1: I think I noticed that A long time ago when I was 16, I started having physical problems to do with my like reproductive system. I had a cyst on my ovaries and then that kind of escalation of trying to solve that problem and then people not knowing the answers to that problem and then suggesting that there was something going on in my mind rather than it being a physical manifestation of a mental problem probably started when I was in my teen years but it wasn't it hasn't been until that maybe i was i think i was 25 26 where i went oh actually there is something wrong here i'm hiding at work i'm hiding away from people i'm rocking backwards and forwards behind diagonaly when i used to work at Warner brothers <laughs> behind a green screen and diagonally just like silently crying and rocking backwards and forwards and team leaders coming to find me again i think we need to talk about this like you're not okay and that was when i started saying that I wasn't okay when I wasn't okay, rather than just pretending everything was fine.
0: What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people might say to you, it could be a sound, it could be placed in a social environment, a smell. What can you tell me here? Or have you not figured all of them out yet?
1: I think there are a lot of things that do it. It can be a... What's it the kids say? Leaving you on red. I don't really know what that means. But not responding to messages. Being left out, like FOMO. I've got better at that one though. But that like seeing other people doing stuff and you not being included. That sets me off. Looking at myself funny in a mirror. Not being able to fit into clothes. Being out on a night out and drinking the wrong type of alcohol. Feeling stupid, like saying something and then somebody looking at you funny. I mean, there's so many different things and... I don't think there's any way to necessarily avoid any of those triggers. I think it's just about learning to cope with them.
0: Can you tell me about the first story of the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? Who was it with? What impact did it have? And looking back, did it feel like a big moment or a weight had been lifted? Or did it feel like something quite normalised and insignificant?
1: I went to the doctors because I thought I had really bad cystitis and I needed to wee all the time. It was constant need to urination and I was in pain, I had back pain and I was drinking so much water and I couldn't work out what the problem was and I'd suffered a lot when I was at university with cystitis because of drinking too much alcohol and not looking after myself like you do when you're a student. So I just went back to the doctors, I think I was like 21, 22 and I was like, what's going on? That she'd give me the tablets and it didn't do anything. And I'd come back and she'd be like, well, you don't, you don't have an infection. I think it's going on in your mind. And I was like, sorry? <laughs> and knowing that I'd periodically experienced this talking about, you know, in a larger sense about my, my other physical stuff that I had going on. I'd sort of experienced it, but never been told quite so directly that it was not a physical problem. It was a mental problem. And I was put on anti-anxiety medication. And her way of phrasing it was, it's to, we have to retrain your brain so we can retrain your body. And at the time I was also on a contraceptive pill and it did completely the other thing where it made me feel absolutely nothing. And at the time when that was happening, I was just kind of this beige thing. And I remember when I made the decision to stop taking them. And I think that was a bigger moment rather than the start of the medication. Where I just went, I can't do this anymore. I had conversations with various people. They were like, you are not yourself. You are just like a a walking collection of bones and water. There's no personality that has completely wiped you out. So I stopped taking both the contraceptive and also the anti-anxiety medication. And I remember the moment where I started crying and I hadn't cried in three, four months. And I am a bit of a crier. I always have been because I feel things deeply. And I had this headpiece from... It was when I was at Warner Brothers. I had a, a radio and a little coil with the the earpiece. And I couldn't get the coil right, which is something I used to do to busy my hands was try and get the coil looping correctly rather than being all twisted around itself. And I couldn't get it right and I just burst into tears. And then I started crying even more because I was feeling something. And the, <laughs> there were these two lads that were stood next to me and they were like, um what's what's going on because they saw the change from me crying about the thing to then crying about feeling about the thing and i was just like i'm just so happy that i'm crying and i remember that being a bigger moment than being put on the drugs because it made me go actually i need to be able to deal with this myself rather than rely on medication
0: how do you support friends or people in your life who may have mental health issues themselves or maybe going through a poor period of mental health um whether that be men or women
1: I think it's different depending on the person and how close you are to them. I have a couple of friends where I am their SOS, essentially, where they say to me, not necessarily this phrase, but they'll just be like SOS. And that's when I know that I need to leave my phone on, whatever time of night it is. And then there are also people where if you check in with them and they say they're not okay, then you know not to which is something I've got quite good at, not going, are you okay? How are you? Because you want to know, but equally you don't want to put pressure on people because sometimes, and I know this from my own experience, they can't respond and they don't have the energy to do that. So the best way I've found with doing that is to just go, I'm thinking about you or... Here's a little gif I've seen, or I saw this and I thought of you, or just sending you hugs, I'm thinking about you, no need to respond. And also letting them know that they don't need to respond is really, really important because that pressure to respond can also make people back away and go further into themselves. So that's something I always try and do is let them know that I'm there for them and that I'm thinking about them, but there is no need for them to interact until they're ready.
0: And as a final question, it's quite a broad one, Em. But what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it?
1: Oh God, there's so much to do, isn't there? While this last year has been very, very difficult in many, many ways, I think it has meant that people have opened up a little bit more about stuff. And I think it's just a constant conversation that needs to be had. To allow people to open up and I think maybe employers, some are getting better but for them to have the resources and offer the resources to be able to deal with mental health stuff. Like have a free therapy or or have a counselling service or just have something in place in case rather than having to deal with the problem after then it happens. I think stuff needs to be in place as a preventative rather than as a reactive way of dealing with the problem. And I think more can be done in the media. I think people can talk about it more on television, I think. I think perhaps, I don't know, I don't watch soaps anymore, but does, is it talked about in that? That's why Pure was so amazing, that the programme I was talking about before, because it was talking about, literally, the whole thing was about a woman with a form of OCD. It was pure OCD, but her fixation was on sexualizing everything. And it is a real problem and nobody had ever seen anything like that on television before so people need to keep pushing boundaries especially with arts and when everything gets back up and running that's where it starts that's where the conversations start is from a fictional place and then that can open up into a more real conversation i think <laughs>
0: Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of Real Stories. I want to say a big and massive thank you to Emily for telling me her real story and for being the first female guest on the series. I'll provide some links to where you can follow Emily's work on social media and find out more about Netflix. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell all your friends about it. Tell your work colleagues about it. If you want to help us with the algorithms, give us a review and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and you want to support us more, please consider supporting our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com slash VentHelpUK. Every penny really does count, I'm telling you now. Stay tuned for the next episode of Real Stories. And remember, it's always okay. just you to take me.
1: Vem want be